My name is Jacob Wearson. I'm one of the co-substitute teaching leaders here. Uh, so along with Caitlin and Ian Harrier, uh, Brett and Vicki Tatko, uh, we help lead this class, uh, young adults, here in St. Louis. Um, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 31 through 54, uh, if you want to follow along. And, um, you know, I've been loving what we've been reading the last few weeks in the Gospel of John. Uh, I think John has made it clear what Jesus' primary purpose is, um, or at least the main problem that Jesus is addressing addressing for humans, uh, and that's the problem of sin, right? It's the problem that haunts all of mankind, and I think John has made that pretty clear in the first chapters of his book. Um, So Jesus has come here clearly to deal with humanity's separation from God, right, which produces spiritual death, which is sin. But he isn't only doing that while he's here. I think we've encountered our tender, loving Savior who never deals with us on a grand collective scale. Um, He always deals with us on the personal level as well. He intricately, intricately knows our sins, our addictions, our own specific ways of rejecting God and following after our own false gods and idols. He's also keenly aware of our personal burdens of just living in a fallen world. We're going to talk about a couple of those tender moments tonight when we see Jesus um, in his personal caring, all-knowing capacity, um, where he shows us the true riches of grace that reach to the farthest and darkest corners of our hearts, and they alleviate even the greatest trials and burdens that we face here on this earth. Um, So we're going to see that unfold tonight. Uh, I divided the lecture up into two divisions. The first division, the saving work of Christ, that's going to be John chapter 4, verses 31 through 42. So finishing off our account, right, of the Samaritan woman and Jesus' encounter in Samaria. And then division two, the healing work of Christ, John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. I jotted down this big idea uh, that I think we can learn as a whole from this part of John chapter 4. And it's simply this, the grace of Jesus gives us the salvation from sin and death that we so desperately need and the freedom from life's heavy burdens that we desperately long for. Say that one more time. The grace of Jesus gives us the salvation from sin and death that we so desperately need and the freedom from life's burdens that we so desperately long for. Pray with me and then we will go ahead and dive into this last part of John chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, um, just filled with a lot of different things going on in our lives. We come from school, we come from work. Um, Lord, we just ask you to center our hearts and our minds right now for these next 25-ish minutes. Lord, can we just be in your presence? Hear what your word has for us, Lord. May we walk away not feeling more burdened. but feeling like our burdens have been lifted because of what you have done on the cross and your resurrection. Lord, I thank you that you meet us right where we are and you meet us right here, right now, as we're reading your word. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, division one, the saving work of Christ. This is John chapter four, verses 31 through 42. Uh, So our lesson last week was primarily the encounter, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And we had a very anticlimactic end to our lesson. I mean, it just, like right in the middle of the story, our lesson cuts us off. John, the last verse that we read last week was John four, verse 30. Uh, They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And that was it. That was the end of our lesson. And it was like, okay, I guess it's kind of a cliffhanger. So we're going to finish up the last half of that uh, account here. So we start with verse 31 here in chapter 4. And we pick up here, verse 31 reads, uh, Meanwhile, 
Uh, this is after Jesus's encounter with uh, the woman at the well. Um, uh, verse 31 reads, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, rabbi, eat something. Um, and I love when Jesus does this, right? Because he does this a lot with encounters when people ask him seemingly pretty simple, straightforward questions. And Jesus just launches into this very intricate and powerful spiritual discussion. And frankly, I, I don't really blame the disciples for asking the follow-up question or wondering, like, could someone have brought him food? I mean, that's kind of what I would have asked. Like, I was just asking you, Jesus, if you were, like, you should eat something. And Jesus is like, well, I have food you don't know anything about. And you're like, okay, I guess me. <laughs> I, I apologize for asking. But, I mean, so I don't, I don't blame the disciples here. It's, it's somewhat confusing. But Jesus uses this response uh, to really dive into what his work is on earth that has been given to him by the Father. Um, and I think it's a helpful context, right? Because the disciples had to have been wondering, what are we doing in Samaria? What are we doing talking to the Samaritans? We talked about who the Samaritans were last week, right? Um, sort of this arch-rival uh, offshoot of Judaism. The Jewish people and the Samaritans did not get along with each other. They had to have been asking, what is he doing talking to a Samaritan woman? What are we doing here in Samaria? And Jesus explains what he means uh, when he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Uh, he says, he, el- he elaborates in verses 35 and 36. Um, my food, said Jesus, is the, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Uh, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Lots of symbolism going on here. Uh, lots of words to unpack. But I think a first immediate follow-up question to this would be, what is the will of him who sent me? What is the will of him who sent me? And Jesus is referring to his father. Uh, we think that's pretty clear. Um, And we only need, again, like I said, to look at the previous chapters in John to see what the Father's will is for Jesus. You know, John 1, for example, says that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is life, and that life was for all mankind. Further on in John chapter 1, we read, uh, yet to all who did receive him, that being Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 3, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. I think put in very plain language, we read this in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus does the father's will perfectly and what is that will in short? It is for Jesus to pursue lost sinners, to redeem and restore them back to the Father. Jesus is on a rescue mission, first and foremost, for sinners. And, that, and the way that Jesus would complete the Father's work for him on this earth would be through a bloody cross, through pain, through rejection, and ultimately through an empty tomb as he defeats sin and death. And Jesus keeps furthering on and right in this symbolism of what is the harvest, um, you know, what are the wages? And he, and he gets into this discussion that is sometimes, for me, a little hard to follow sometimes. And I'm going to say we approach this passage of scripture with a lot of humility um, because there are a lot of good insights into what these words and symbols mean. And we have, some of us might have some different perspectives. So I approach this with a lot of humility. Um, I'm sure you had an amazing discussion. The group I joined had a fantastic discussion on this. Um, and our discussion might look differently 
from what we think all these words and symbols mean. But I'm going to do my best to kind of sum up what Jesus is saying here. Um, So that's just a caveat. Approaching this with a lot of humility because this is somewhat mysterious in some ways. Um, But it looks like the harvest, right, Jesus is referring to pretty clearly basically lost souls whose hearts are ripe to receive the word of the gospel and to believe it. Uh, We're talking with a few other people uh, at BSF, and this came up a little bit in our discussion too tonight, um, that the sower could be the Holy Spirit. Um, The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares people's hearts to receive the word and to believe in the salvation that Jesus offers. Um, The reaper, perhaps, is those who share the gospel message with others, God's workers to share the gospel. Uh, Jesus also mentions the wages, um, and your notes touched on what wages meant. I was a little confused here. It could be the, maybe the spiritual benefits that someone receives after they've shared the gospel. Uh, maybe when someone believes in the word of the gospel and, you know, there's, some, there's joy, right? Someone is sharing in their joy, the spiritual benefits of witnessing that uh, or doing the will and work of God. But verse 38 is probably the most puzzling verse of all. And verse 38 reads, if I can find it here, Um, Others have done, this is what Jesus says in verse 38, others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And I was like, what does the other, who is the others? Like, what are you talking about? Like, who is coming before and preparing the way? Um, Talking about this with some other people here at BSF, um, and this also came up in discussion, this could be maybe an allusion to the uh, Old Testament prophets or maybe the Old Testament scriptures that had come before Christ, right? The Old Testament is one big message declaring that there is going to be a Messiah that will save and rescue the world from sin and death. It could be. Um, That's kind of the one that I went with. But again, what you were discussing in your groups probably looked very different than what I just said here. So we approached this passage um, with humility, uh, maybe with some open-mindedness too, because I think there's a lot of great perspectives on what those symbols mean. But let's dive, on, dive into, I think, what, what is clear and what is for sure what Jesus is trying to say here. Um, you know, we read on in verse 42, uh, for example, G- um, verse 42 reads, they being the Samaritans said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we believe just, uh, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So Jesus is, ta- is talking about the harvest and, and amazingly, right, his metaphor comes to life pretty immediately. That harvest right here, at least for this um, specific example, Samaritans are believing in the gospel. They're believing in Christ. It spreads from one woman's testimony to the rest of the town. And by her declaring, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Other Samaritans hear this and they believe that he is the Christ. And this leads to our first principle tonight, which is that experiencing the grace of Jesus produces a real and powerful testimony. Experiencing the grace of Jesus produces a real and powerful testimony. I think there's some incredible things to note in this passage. One of them goes back to who the Samaritans are uh, and their history and context. Uh, so if you remember from last week, Vicky was talking about who the Samaritans were. Your notes get into it as well. In short, um, if you think back to Israel's divided kingdom days, um, they were part of the northern tribe of Israel. When Assyria conquered the northern tribe, um, a lot of people were deported, but a lot of people were left in the northern kingdom. And the people that were left uh, mixed with other pagan nations and other pagan people, so a lot of their religious uh, practices and customs were mixing with um, the surrounding pagan nations. So what you got with the Samaritan religion was a worship of the Hebrew God and also worship of false gods and false uh, idol worship. Um, So it was kind of a hodgepodge religion with, with a bunch of different things. And of course, for the Jewish people, they did not, Samaritans and the Jewish people did not, uh, like each other to put it 
to put it uh, kindly, they hated each other. There was hatred. Samaria was an obscure part. Um, Jewish people did not want to ever go through Samaria. It was thought of as an unclean land. So with all that context and all that history, when you're reading this, to me, I'm thinking, wow, it's a miracle that one Samaritan woman believes in the gospel. Considering all this historical context and history and uh, the burden and the division between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, but is it, it isn't just one Samaritan woman. It's many Samaritan people, which is an incredible uh, miracle. In verse 39, right, many people believe because of the woman's testimony. And I keep going back to that thinking, what was it about this woman's testimony that inspired all these people to believe in Jesus Christ? And I have to think, I think this Samaritan woman, it's just a pure example of someone encountering the real grace of Jesus in real time. And she just couldn't contain herself. It's that infectious testimony that moves the hearts of the Samaritans and causes them to believe in Christ as well. And as we're hearing this and we read about Jesus using the metaphors for the harvest and and all this, I think, you know, an absolute takeaway, right, is the will of God is for us to proclaim the message of the gospel. And we talked about this in group tonight too. This, This metaphor is not just for the Samaritans. It's immediately comes to life with the Samaritans believing in the gospel, but I think this is a good call for mission, right? For us to share the message uh, of Christ. I mean, Matthew 28 is our great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sharing the gospel, being a witness for Christ is absolutely part of our Christian walk. Um, And that's a real command for us in scripture, but I still, I want to focus on this testimony for a second. Because at least for me, when I just hear about the call of the great commission, to share the gospel, it kind of terrifies me. It causes this anxiety and fear and worry. To me, I can hear this as just one more to-do item where there's a lot of pressure and anxiety and stress involved, and it's just one more thing that I am not doing right. It's one more expectation in my Christian life that I am not meeting. But if we look at the woman at the well's testimony, if we take our cue from her, in which so many Samaritans believe, it's a little different. Because to me, what her testimony sounds like, it sounds like that she encountered the real Jesus. I mean, think about what she's telling everyone here. She's telling everyone, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. If I met a man who told me everything I ever did, including my shame, my sin, my failures, I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody about this person. I don't want anybody else to find out about that stuff. And she's like, no, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Everything, my greatest burden, perhaps her greatest insecurity, her greatest source of shame. Come meet the man who told me everything I ever did and who didn't run away from me, who wasn't just one more person to shun me, who wasn't just one more person who just pointed out out my sin and walked away. Jesus got to the very bottom and core of her emptiness And he offered her a spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. So she met Jesus and she fully experienced the gospel of grace. And she couldn't help. She couldn't help but tell everyone about this kind, gracious savior that met her uh, where she was and provided her true freedom and rest from the shackles of this empty life. And we have this, I, I, I personally have this mindset, right? Is the essence of Christian life is to do this, to do that, uh, to check off kind of this checklist and boxes to obey. I'm not saying that obedience, right, is not a good thing. Of course, it's part of our Christian walk, but I really think the essence of our Christian, Christian life begins with Christ. It begin, begins in a one-on-one encounter 
with his grace. And we see this time and time again. We've read, it, read about it the last few weeks. Jesus has these one-on-one encounters uh, with people at the well with the Samaritan woman in the middle of the night with Nicodemus. It's in these deep, quiet moments where Jesus meets us in, heart, in our souls, where we encounter his grace, where he takes away our shame. He gives us a new name and identity. He solidifies our faith with his forgiveness and redemption. That's where the Christian journey starts. That's the essence of our Christian walk, is what Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection and what he has given to us through his grace. I keep going back to the Samaritan woman's response, her infectious desire for other people to meet Jesus. And it just causes me to ask the question. I call myself a follower of Christ. I call myself a believer. But do I encounter and ponder and rest in Jesus' grace like she did? Is my testimony infectious and so excited that I'm, I'm pointing others to him, not out of some religious duty, but because I truly have experienced that freedom and that real grace? Because my heart has been softened and I've met the one who told me everything I ever did and didn't run away, didn't shame me, didn't reject me, but welcomed me in, provided me full forgiveness and gave me a new life. And I think it begs the question, what would it be like to encounter Jesus's grace in this way? Let's keep diving in because I think we're gonna explore that a little bit in uh, when we encounter the royal official. This is the latter part of John chapter four, verses 43 through 54, the healing work of Christ. All right, so after Jesus's encounter in Samaria, Jesus moves on to Galilee. Uh, And the Galileans welcomed Jesus because of what they saw Jesus do in Jerusalem uh, at the Passover festival. And it's interesting that John notes this in verse 44, uh, that Jesus uh, said that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It seems a little random and out of place here. Again, there's a lot of passages where we take with a lot of humility, because sometimes I'm like, I don't know if we 100% know. Um, But just being in the discussion I was in a second ago, it really helped me and provided, you know, talking through this with others, provided some helpful context. Um, you know, I think Jesus, you know, could be maybe foreboding his, the rest of his earthly ministry. We know where Jesus's earthly ministry ends. It ends in rejection, rejection. He has few friends so much so that his own family refuses to believe, has trouble believing that he is the Messiah. And this is also true of any prophet ever in the scriptures from the old Testament to the new Testament. If you remember old Testament prophets, none of them were welcomed in their own country. They were all rejected. Many of them were killed by their own people. Uh, when anyone ever did the work of God and brought uh, the message of God to the people to repent, they were usually rejected. So Jesus could just be, you know, John could be highlighting that, right? He's coming back to where he's from Galilee. Um, and, and he's pointing out a fact of, of what happens when, when a person of God is uh, rejected by his own, his own people. And so after that, after that verse 44, Jesus returns also to the place of his, uh, of his miracle of turning water into wine at Cana. And it's here at Cana that Jesus meets a royal official um, who begs Jesus to come heal his son uh, who is close to death. Uh, I don't know, fun fact, I uh, did some research um, on the royal official, and by research I Googled, what does the royal official mean? You can do this too. Um, you know, Google said that the royal official was likely in Herod's court, not a Roman, because my first thought is maybe he's a Roman. And Google told me he is not a Roman. He's probably in Herod's court. Um, if you want to do more extensive research than that, you are more than welcome to. It was literally like the second option on Google. And I thought, sounds good. So this is a fun fact. I thought, I think it's kind of cool. Royal official, he's probably Jewish. He's in Herod's court. Um, anyway, so we encountered this royal official 
Um, and I think we encounter him in this desperate state. How do we know that the royal official is desperate? Um, well, for one, his son is close to death. And I think any, most parents out there would be in a desperate state if their son um, was close to dying. But also verse 47 tells us that the royal official is begging Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus' initial response in verse 48 is a little shocking. It shocked me. Uh, Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Um, when I was talking about this with some other people here at BSF, we were like, okay, Jesus, like, what the heck? Like, that's kind of mean. But Jesus always has a purpose and a plan which e- with each of these comments uh, and, and questions. Um, some, some wise advice that I got um, actually from Vicki Tadko about these passages. Whenever we see something confusing like this in scripture, we go back to what is Jesus's purpose, aim, and goal here. Jesus is sharing and revealing his identity to the people. He's telling people, I'm the Messiah, I'm the son of God, I am God, I'm God himself. So we have to remember that. There's always gonna be a purpose to what Jesus says and how he responds. He's trying to get people to believe in him. He's revealing his identity to the people. Um, And I think Jesus here is also stating a fact that humans, right, just if you think about my own heart and our own hearts, we want the miraculous signs. And we see this time and time again in Jesus's earthly ministry. People come to Jesus for the miracles, for the healing. And oftentimes they just forget about Jesus after they're healed. Someone brought that up tonight. Um, people forget after they see the miraculous signs, it's like, okay, I got what I needed from Jesus and now I'm on my way. So Jesus is stating just, I think, a fact of the wickedness of the human heart. Um, and we also have to rem- uh, remember Jesus always intended to heal this man's son, right? Jesus eventually heals the man's son. So I think... Um, Jesus is actually um, working with the royal official and kind of pressing him to have faith in him. So let's continue on in this interaction. Um, So after Jesus makes that comment, um, Jesus responds to the royal official and then the royal official says, no, Jesus, please, you you need to heal him. And he comes back. Even after that comment, the royal official comes with another request to heal his son. And verse 50 tells us that the royal official took Jesus at his word and departed. Um, This is also another quick side note. I don't know if this is the point of the passage, but I I jotted this down because I think this was applicable to my own life. We're meeting this royal official in a desperate part, right, of his life. I just think, how many times does Jesus meet us when we are are at the end of ourselves, when we are in a state of desperation? Um, I have been many times Christ has met me when I'm desperate, when I have no answers to turn to. Um, and it's in those moments that he meets me and proves himself to be my all-sufficient savior. Um, so just an observation, Jesus often meets us in our desperation. Um, so what do we find, right? In verse 53, what is the result of this encounter after the royal official takes Jesus at his word? Uh, we read in verse 53 that the father realized that when his servants told him the time that his son's fever had left him, That was the exact time Jesus had told him that his son would live. The royal official experienced Jesus's grace through his son's healing. And at his moment of desperation, Jesus stepped in and proved himself to be who he claims to be, the son of God, the Christ. And that leads us to our final principle tonight. The grace of Jesus extends to our everyday problems, constant anxieties, and overwhelming burdens, and provides true rest for our soul. Grace of Jesus extends to our everyday problems, constant anxieties, and overwhelming burdens, and provides true rest for the soul.
All right, let's wrap up and conclude. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are seeing here in this passage that Jesus' main purpose for coming to earth is to seek and save the lost, to redeem lost souls. That is his rescue mission. But in that rescue mission, he's not only tackling the main problem of sin, he is also tackling the symptoms of living in a fallen world. He's tackling emptiness that so, that so often accompanies living in this life. He's tackling um, ailments and infirmities and, and conquering that through healing. He's compassionate enough to care about the, the burdens and wrestles of just living in this everyday life. Um, and maybe to no one's surprise or your surprise, I don't know, the doctrine of this week for BSF was grace. I said grace a lot. I was trying to hint, I was like, grace, 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 because the doctrine of the week is grace. Um, and I think it applies to this context. And a simple definition of grace, I think most, people, most of us would probably be familiar with this, um, but a simple definition, I think, or a helpful definition would be grace is God's unmerited favor to undeserving sinners. In other words, it is unearned grace. It is a free gift because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, what he accomplished for us. That is a free gift. It is unearned And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, um, the biggest problem, which is sin and separation from God, has already been dealt with. The free grace that we've received in Christ, and I emphasize free again, because we didn't earn it, and what I love about it is we can never lose it, ever. It can never be taken away from us, um, is ours. That grace is ours. So a simple question, too, here is, what is some of the grace that that we have received in Christ? Um, I'm going to just, I don't have time to read all these verses, so I'm just going to list them. Um, I'm going to list like three or four. I'm just going to do it. I don't know why I'm explaining it. I'm just going to get down and do it. Okay, Colossians 2. (laughs) Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Um, We are fully forgiven. Past, present, and future sins, we are totally forgiven. If we are in Christ, our sins are totally forgiven. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 is the doctrine of justification. We are fully justified. I love this one because it means I no longer have to prove myself or defend myself or my ego. I am set free from that burden to prove myself. I am justified. My life is spoken for before the Father because of what Christ has done. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shame is fiction for the believer. That is, it is fiction for us. It is no longer our identity. We are freed from that. And another, and I think this gets to the, royal, the encounter with the royal official, um, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Um, I'll just read this one. Since we, uh, writer of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do we receive in grace? We, re- we receive the presence of Christ, meaning we are not abandoned to face the difficult circumstances of this life alone. Jesus' grace stoops down into the messy every day. He knows the small and big burdens. He knows the constant and overwhelming anxieties, the things that burden our soul. And in his constant living presence, he eases those burdens and causes us to soar above life's ever-changing circumstances. So let's focus on that one, because I think that applies to the royal official a little little bit more, that we're not alone to face the brokenness of this life. 
Again, we go back. What was the state of the royal official? He was desperate. He's begging Jesus. His son is at the point of death. So we think about, let's think about the times in our life that we've been desperate. Or the times in my life that I've been desperate. Maybe it's in the midst of a very troubling relationship. Maybe there's unforgiveness. Uh, Maybe it's a breakup. Uh, Maybe it's uh, someone in your family who's been divorced. Maybe it's through the loss of a a loved one, losing someone uh, to death. Maybe it's wrestling in singleness, struggling with loneliness, feeling alone. Maybe it's a nagging insecurity that you just can't shake or the very heavy burdens of anxiety and depression. In many of those moments, I have felt desperate. Maybe you've felt desperate. We can't really put our words to what desperation feels like, but we know it. When we're desperate, we know it, and we are, we are familiar with what it feels like. And in that desperation, we are also waiting. There's so many times in my life where I've been waiting. I've been waiting for Jesus to, to move, waiting for this problem to be solved, waiting for some miraculous sign. And you know, this is exactly what's happening to the royal official, right? I mean, think about it, right? The royal official has come into Jesus. He's desperate. He's begging Jesus to heal his son. And the royal official believes. The royal official takes Jesus's word as it is and says, okay, I'm going to believe. You, you told me my son is, is healed. I'll take, you, I'll take your word for it. But he has to wait an entire day to figure out if his son was healed or not. Can you imagine that? If you're a parent and your child is about to die and someone says they're healed and you have to wait 24 hours to see whether or not your, your child is living. For a parent, for anyone, that would be like an eternity. He causes the royal official to wait. And you know, I wish I could stand here, and this, was, this is a beautiful display of Christ's power, of his identity, of who he is. He is the son of man. He is God. I, could wish right now, I wish I could stand here right now and say that when we trust Christ for salvation, all of our questions get answered. All of our problems and obstacles and illnesses are healed once and for all. He swoops down, solves all of our insecurities and anxieties and doubts, and it's all good. And you know what? We should never limit God, right? God does still heal. God is still the God of miracles. Um, But sometimes I'm just thinking of my own life. Things that I have prayed for, things that I have waited on, it doesn't always happen. He's still causing me, causing us to wait. So what do we get in the waiting? What do do we do when we're desperate and we're coming to Jesus like the royal official? What do we receive if we are believers? What do we receive when we're waiting on God? I think if we think back to some of the verses, right? Romans, Hebrews, um, Colossians, we receive Jesus. We receive the empathizing, patient, long-suffering Savior of the world. We, like the woman at the well, encounter his grace in real time. We encounter his goodness, his presence. And we encounter the living waters that he promised the woman at the well, the springs of living waters that truly satisfy and well up to eternal life. And it's in this, when we receive and experience him in the riches of his grace, that's where true healing, that true soul deep healing, excuse me, that's when that healing actually begins. And it's a grace that goes beyond the ebb and flow of our current circumstances. So as we wrap up here and conclude, how do we encounter that grace? Um, Well, for one, believing that Jesus is the Christ, coming to him in faith and repentance is a good first step. But secondly, once we have been saved, I think it's, it's hard, and I experience this so much, even after I'm saved, how much I forget that my life 
is predicated, my, the foundation of my life is predicated on grace. It is predicated on the free gifts that Jesus has given me because of what he has accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. So step one, how do I experience that grace? Rehearse the gospel. I rehearse the gospel to myself. I have others rehearse it back to me. In community here at BSF, uh, at church, right? you get other people to remind you of the grace and the reality of our identity in Christ. We go back to the foundation and the basics of our faith. And secondly, this one's a little harder. It's something that we need his grace for. We take Jesus at his word, right? The royal official took Jesus at his word. We can be like the one at the well. We believe that Jesus is good. That no matter what happens in the time of waiting, he gives me not what I want, what I think I want. He gives me exactly what I need. And it's there that true soul healing begins when we experience his grace, no matter what life looks like. So we can pray right now tonight that the Lord would meet us where we are. If we're feeling desperate in our desperation, we can take him at his word and we will know him to be the all-sufficient savior. Let's pray. Uh, this is the, probably the, my favorite time of the lecture because I get to stop talking for a little bit and we just get to come before God in quiet. For all of us, I know for me, this is probably the quietest part of my week, <laughs> which is filled with so much noise and busyness. So wherever you are right now in life, just come before the Lord right now in silence, quiet your heart. Lord, right now we are approaching your throne of grace. Lord, for many of us, we are in desperate places. We have unanswered questions. Um, We have things that have happened to us or things that we have done that don't make sense, that give us confusion, that give us burden and regret. And Lord, um, like you do with the woman at the well, like you do with the royal official, you meet us exactly where we are. You don't ask for anything. You meet us in our state of desperation. Lord, right now, I pray... um, For someone in this room who um, maybe they've never made that first step of faith, Lord. Maybe they've never believed that you are truly the Christ, that you redeem and restore and forgive and you release our burdens and the shackles of this life, Lord. I pray for them, Lord. I pray that their hearts would be ripe to receive your word, even tonight, Lord. If they came with someone, Lord, that um, you would use that interaction, Lord, to bring them to you. Lord, I also pray for, for those of us in the room too, Lord, who um, are struggling in our walk with you, God, where we are just burdened by one more burden to do this, to do that, to check off the Christian checklist, to do this ministry, to do that. We are pulled in a million directions, and you come before us right now, and you ease those burdens. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that you would quiet our souls, that we would go back to the basics, that we would remember the grace that we have in you, to remember our identity, and to remember that the work is done. You have done the finished work. You have taken our sin and shame on the cross, and you have given us new life through your resurrection. Lord, I pray that whatever we're struggling with, if we're in a waiting season right now, Lord, that you would meet us and we would encounter the God of grace. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.